Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. do something today called Freedom Sunday, and we're actually doing this along with 3,000 plus other churches around the world. And uh, I want to get into today's topic this way, with a a question. If I were to walk up to you just on the street, well, that might be kind of weird if you didn't know me, but you know me. Okay, I'm walking up to you street, you know me, and I'm just going to ask you the question, is slavery a big problem in our world today? What would you say? I'm hearing some yeses. And I kind of would say that same thing a little bit, but I think a lot of us tend to think about this and we go, well, 150 years, 150 years ago, we fought this war that ended slavery, and around that same time in history, slavery was outlawed in much of the Western world and much of the world. And I, I think I, te- I tend to think many of us would say yes, but I think we would think it's, you know, it's, a, it's present, but it's nowhere the scale that it used to be. Let me just... Uh, go through some numbers that are going to show up on the screen here and just kind of, I'm going to talk to you what slavery is like today in today's world by the numbers. Uh, According to UN and other researchers who are researching this, they, they estimate there's likely up to 45 million people in slavery in the world today. That, would, that, that population would constitute the entire population of the state of Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. In fact, there are more people in slavery today in the world than at any single time in history. Even in nations whose laws technically outlaw slavery, unfortunately all too often the practice of slavery is ignored and just let be. Uh, One would think that with all the people in slavery in the world, there'd be outrage going on all the time. I mean, it's not hard. We see outrage every day in the media, right? But for some reason, this kind of just flies under the radar a little bit. Even worse, one in four of those people enslaved in the world are children. That's more than 11 million, 11 some odd million people. That's like the entire state of Iowa, of Ohio being children, and all of them are slaves. The International Justice Mission has, uh, has been fighting this for a long time, and they've done efforts where they've freed up to 500 people at one time from slavery working in brick factories in India. And many of those working there are children who are working 12 to 18 hours a day and required to carry bricks weighing twice their body weight all day long. In India, for example, and it's, it's elsewhere, it's Pakistan, it's North Korea, it's China, it's, it's Russia, it's Africa, it's, it's South America, Central America, it's going on all over the place. In India, a child goes missing every eight hours. And over half of them are never found again. In most places in the world, slavery is actually a result of financial desperation causing someone to, to make a deal or to pursue an opportunity that can resolve their problem, but instead it turns into something that enslaves them. And the average amount of shortfall somebody in the world has to have is a shortfall of the equivalent of $20 U.S. dollars for them to get into slavery. 
A family member can't get medicine or they don't have enough money for food and somebody offers them the equivalent of 20 to 20 U.S. dollars and, and then through the financial manipulation or, co or other coercive manipulation they become entrapped. Oftentimes the entrapment comes along with we know where your family lives and if you don't keep working for free your family will get hurt or you'll get killed or they'll get killed. 4.2 million people are enslaved in the $150 billion sex trade industry around the world. And 13 is the average age of someone enslaved in the sex trade. Just 13 years old. Uh, before International Justice Mission got involved in Cambodia, it was one of the hubs for the sex trade in the world, and they, they were estimating somewhere between 15 and 30 percent of the, those enslaved in the sex trade there were minors. Just 8, 10, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, some as young as five. After 15 years of international justice mission working with the authorities there, the government, the police seeking reform, and a number, the number of minors in the sex trade has decreased from that percentage and it's dropped precipitously to now a recent survey says it's one-tenth of one percent are minors in the sex trade in Cambodia. Progress can be made. Another researcher uh, that I was listening to in preparation for this was talking about interviewing a, a, a pimp who had been arrested and convicted. It was in the U.S. and she asked him how, how he found the victims and what criteria he used. And his response was this. He said, the younger the better. If I can get them at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, then after a week of gang rape and abuse, he said, their eyes go blank. And he said, unlike the ones that I get when they're older, once these little ones, their eyes go blank, I know that they're never going to run away. 200 to 300,000 Americans are enslaved in the sex trade today. Ohio is the fourth leading state in the, I don't know if you should call it leading, in the most number of sex slaves of any state in the union. We just saw a big sting in the headlines this last week in Columbus and central Ohio arresting hundreds, right, of people involved in this. Why is that so? It's because the sex trade thrives in larger cities where large conventions and large sporting events takes place. And the sex trade thrives where the drug trade thrives as well. So the question is, what can we do about it? And what does the Bible say about that? And if Ecclesiastes 4... God's working on Solomon's heart, and, and I think Solomon is actually penning God's heart when he says, Again I looked, and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, and I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. See, our response to this very real problem just simply starts by allowing ourselves to see the problem and let it break our hearts. It's really easy for us to avoid this problem and to not see it. It's just completely easy for us to do that. We can even idealize the sex trade through, through movies like Pretty Woman and, and not see it as the evil that it is, but it is young boys and young girls the same age as the boys and girls who are playing on soccer with your children and your grandchildren like your children who are enforced to endure things that suck the life right out of them until their eyes go blank and they're unwilling to even fight it anymore. It's women and men, not unlike your friends, who have been manipulated or coerced, who, who did not feel like they had an option, they have an option in life to be anything different 
We've actually had people here at Quest in the past, they, they, they moved away because of geography change, who at one time were enslaved in the sex trade. Most of you never even realized that, knew that about them. They were just normal people. They were your friend. They were the person you got along with and you enjoyed spending time with. And yet if you knew their story, it would break your heart. Even though technically the past two weeks we've been taking a break from our our No Shortcut series, I want to look at this issue today a little bit further by going back to our core text of that series in Luke 4. We talked in the intro message how God's Spirit came on Jesus and and then uh, led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Well, if you actually uh, see that story through in Luke 4, he comes out of that temptation in the wilderness and the Spirit then leads him to his hometown in Nazareth. And it's a Sabbath day, so Jesus goes to church. And all the people there know him. I mean, he grew up with them, right? Small town. Part of the service was reading the scriptures. So the leaders actually handed the scroll of Isaiah to Jesus and asked him to read. I'm sure it was just like any homecoming of a, you know, I'm sure Jesus was one of their star pupils growing up in Sunday school. And and he was the kid that was always, you know, that they were always having do stuff. And they were just so proud to have him back. It was just, it was kind of one of those things. Come on, Jesus. We're so proud of you. Just read this. And he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he finds this text. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, what Jesus is saying in that is, is he's saying, this scripture is about me. This is what I am called to do. This is my mission in life. In fact, this is God's mission in the world, to bring good news to the poor who are enslaved and caught in coercive experiences for 20 bucks to enact freedom for the prisoners, to remove the oppression that controls people and to set the slaves free. For those who are so blind that they cannot see a way out, they have no hope that they can see, he comes and he gives them hope that they too can actually have a good life that they once dreamed of and that God's favor can be with them, not just the curse of what they know in life. Now, we know the whole Bible teaches that we're all enslaved to sin and we cannot free our own selves from that sin. And, and certainly Jesus' mission tells us that it applies to all of us. We all need that freedom from slavery, from sin. But how much more does Jesus' mission apply literally to those who are enslaved by others, coerced by others? And we know that Jesus made in his own life, in his own ministry, a a big personal difference in this because we know that one or more of the women who served in his inner circle, he actually was instrumental in freeing them from the sex trade. So our, our response, I mean, to worship God is to make our lives about his mission. Now, I know that there are some out there who read the Bible and they make an argument against the Bible claiming that the Bible supports or is soft on slavery. Can I just say that reading of Scripture is actually promulgated by people who do not understand what they're reading or who conveniently ignore the context of what they're reading and the implications of what the Bible teaches and the implications of the actions that the people of God in the Bible take. Of course, that kind of thinking is 
obviously not limited to the Bible. I mean, it takes 30 seconds in political discourse on the news media today to realize that there's lots of people out there who twist things out of context and to make people look bad. But Jesus, in his very mission and actions, makes abundantly clear oppression and slavery and letting the powerful use the weak is sinful and wrong. And bringing freedom and restoring dignity is at the very center of God's mission in our world. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, that same endeavor needs to be at the heartbeat of what we're about as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm sure our hearts are moved when we come face to face with this. When we talk about this, we can't help but have tears start to come up in our eyes. But, but the problem seems so big, so what can I do? The problem seems so removed from me. What can I do? Well, let's actually address both those barriers. And to do, to do so today, would you, would you just welcome Christine Eisenhower and Tiffany Tripp to the stage with me? Christina is one of our own here at Quest, and she's actually the one who came to me and made me aware of Freedom Sunday and, and, and made my heart bend to want to do this. Tiffany is, is a leader in a Columbus ministry called Out of Darkness. I'll let Christina tell you more about that. But Christina is going to start by just telling us a little bit about her passion and involvement in this area. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, so for those who don't know me, my name is Christina Eisenhower. My husband, Chris, and my two kids and I have been here at Quest for about a year and a half. And yeah, I had just talked with Ross about doing Freedom Sunday because God's really given me a passion for these issues. I just want to share my heart on that. Um, I remember the first time I was really exposed to these atrocities was my freshman year of college. My dorm leaders shared a documentary from International Justice Mission, and it just hit me. Um, I am really blessed and privileged to have grown up in a loving and stable home, and I have not had any personal experience with injustice. Words like human trafficking and modern-day slavery uh, weren't really part of my vocabulary. But that documentary, it showed a rescue operation of a brothel in Cambodia where girls younger than I was then um, had their bodies used for sex by strangers. And the youngest girls were five years old. And it just broke my heart. And I began to learn more and more about these issues. And I'll be really honest, as I learned more, I questioned how God can allow this to happen. If God cares about justice and the oppressed, then why is our world like this? Um, that's not an easy question or an easy answer, and I still struggle with it once sometimes. But my freshman year of college, I read this book, The Good News About Injustice. It's written by Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, and he spends a lot of time unpacking that question. And one theme has really stuck with me since then. It's that scripture shows us that throughout the course of humanity, when God wants something done on earth, almost always, instead of doing it supernaturally, he chooses to work through his people. So when God wants to uh, the nations to hear the gospel, he asks he doesn't typically speak as a voice in the sky. He asks his people to go and make disciples. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When he wants the hungry to be fed, the homeless to be sheltered, the sick to be healed, he asks his people to care for the least of these. And so it is with rescuing the oppressed and defending the helpless. And one powerful image from this book really highlights it for me. 
It references the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus was preaching, and he saw that the people were hungry. A little boy brought his lunch of bread and fish. Jesus broke it. He handed it to the disciples, and the disciples handed it out to the people. And everybody, of 5,000 people, ate and were satisfied. It's amazing. But imagine if Jesus had broken the food, handed it to the disciples, and the disciples accepted it, thanking God for it without ever passing it on to the people. So they're just standing there saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this food. And then as their bellies are full and there's growing piles of food around them, they look out at this crowd of hungry people and look at Jesus and say, but Jesus, what are you doing to feed them? And God could have just sent manna down from heaven. He could have fed people directly, but he chose to involve that little boy and the disciples in his miracle. How beautiful for them to get to be a part of God's work. And this has been such a motivating image for me. When I'm prone to think, God, what are you doing about injustice? I think of how, I think of how our God chooses to work almost always through his people. And I'm challenged. What am I doing about injustice? Am I sitting in my safety and security saying, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for the resources and the protection and the freedom that you've given me. Or do I humbly ask, God, what skills, assets, and talents have you given me so that I can help those who don't have the resources and protection and freedom that I do? And I won't pretend that I'm perfect at this. This is an area where I'm continuing to seek and to grow. But I want to share about two organizations that God has led me to in response to my question, what am I doing about injustice? And the first is International Justice Mission. We've talked some about IJM, but I want to share a bit more because I just love what they do. Um, from my freshman year throughout the rest of college, I was involved in the campus chapter of IJM, and then I actually served as an intern at their uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C., and have continued to support them since. IJM is a faith-based anti-slavery organization. It operates internationally, and uh, their casework varies based on the country that they're in. Just a few examples of things that they do. In Southeast Asia, um, rescuing girls out of brothels, putting them into aftercare programs where they can receive help. In South Asia, training police officers to recognize bonded slavery and what that looks like and what they can do about it. In Africa, protecting widows from having their land seized from them after their husbands die and thus their livelihoods taken away. In Latin America, prosecuting sexual abusers so that they can't go on abusing others. IJM's mission is kind of threefold. One, actually rescuing slaves and victims out of oppression and helping them in aftercare. Two, holding accountable those slave owners and the perpetrators of injustice. And three, creating justice systems in these countries that actually work for the powerless. Um, so IJM is the organization that coordinated Freedom Sunday across the country, and I'd be happy to talk more, and we have some information out in the back. The second organization that I felt called to work with 
and it's more recent, is Out of Darkness. I started volunteering with Out of Darkness just a few months ago, but I love their hearts and their vision. Their mission is to reach, rescue, and restore all victims of commercial sexual exploitation that the glory of God may be known. They're still a relatively young organization. Out of Darkness in Atlanta has been around for about eight or nine years, and then the chapter here in Columbus has operated, started just about three years ago. The work they do is awesome. So there's three main programs that they have. One is Princess Night. This is outreach. Every Friday night, a group of volunteers goes on a prayer drive um, on the south side of Columbus, which is an area that has been, been identified of where street prostitution still occurs. And we just drive up and down the street. We cover it in prayer. We stop for any women we may encounter. We don't know their circumstances or their story. But we hand them a rose. Um, we give them a card with an encouraging note on it. And we tell them, God loves you. God sees you. Um, we offer to pray with them. And we can also then invite them to the drop-in center, which is the second main program from out of darkness. The drop-in center is a place where on Fridays and Mondays, women can just come. They can get a hot meal. They can get like a light lesson or an activity. They can go and get toiletries and clothing all for free. It's a time when volunteers can actually start to build relationships with these women and show them God's love. And the third main area of out of darkness is the safe house. So when a woman wants to leave sexual exploitation, it can take weeks to find a long-term aftercare program to help her. Um, so the goal of this safe house is to be a short-term refuge to help women to get the care they need, medical care, legal help, and help them find a placement in the long-term program. Women who want to leave the life, they can call a 24-7 hotline, and a rescue team um, staffed by out-of-darkness volunteers will go find her and take her to safe house at an undisclosed location, which is why there's no picture for it. <laughs> um, this summer, Out of Darkness just finished their fundraising campaign so that the house is paid for. They've got everything they need except for one staff member, so they're so close to opening, which is really exciting. So I'm going to now actually have Tiffany Tripp, who is um, one of the founders of Out of Darkness here in Columbus, and the program coordinator, share a little bit more with us. So thank you, thank Tiffany. You. Um, and first, we just would really like you to share what you've heard from women about how they have become caught in commercial sexual exploitation here and um, just all the despair that maybe comes with that experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I won't share specific individual stories because those are their stories to share when they're ready to and, and they want to and we wouldn't want to further exploit her. But I can tell you a story built around the common threads because there's a lot of commonalities and um, and those vulnerabilities that were exploited and, and how that looks, particularly on the south side where we're um, operating the drop-in. So typically the story begins when she's a young child and she's um, abused by a family member for the first time. And um, that changes everything for her. It changes who she believes she is, what she's good for. She loses her voice. Maybe she reported that to mom at some point, and mom told her to be quiet or didn't believe her um, or just really didn't care. So there's no help. There's no um, rescuer that's going to come and fight for her. Um, she just has lost all control and the ability to say no. So the further that she goes on, um, 
other people are going to exploit that vulnerability. Maybe she goes and lives with a family member or some other place to stay, runs away from home, and, and you know, for a short time they may take care of her, but then they say, okay, well, there is a cost to what I'm providing you. And so they continue to benefit off of the abuse of her, and but she has already lost that power to say no, and she already knows what she's good for. And so that just grows up. Maybe she graduates, or high school, not college, maybe not, um, but she turns 18. And so now she goes from a child sex trafficking victim to just a prostitute. And that's a lot of times of what, what sometimes we hear is, well, how do you know the difference between a human trafficking victim and just a prostitute? You're like, let me tell you. <laughs> um, she never got rescued. Oh, I did so good not crying for service. She's still just those dry bones. That look in her eyes is gone. And now she's in this cycle of addiction, whether her parents introduced her to drugs at 13 or she became a user because how else are you going to do what you're doing without a way to escape from it? Or maybe her trafficker introduced drugs as a way to control her. And now she's heavy in addiction and covered with abscesses and is full of diseases and is filthy and can't look herself in the mirror anymore. And she's just a prostitute. She's arrested. So she builds up a record, and, and that's usually where we find her. She's usually staying in what's called a trap house. So, um, you know, some women might be out there on their own for a while and, and might even, you know, consider it that they're in control and and they're on their own, but quickly they're scooped up by somebody that's going to gain off of their exploitation. So we'll find gang members that are running drug houses then um, offer safety and shelter to safety <laughs> to a woman. And so there will be dozens of women staying in this house and then when people come and buy drugs they say oh by the way she's in the basement on a mattress you can have her while you're here so several times we've had women come and get food for a girl that's not allowed to leave that is kept in that house for days at a time um, and then they're out on the street as soon as they wake up there's a quota to fill and that's that's who we get to see so what are some signs that we could be aware of of women who might be caught in this life or also some flags or things that we can do to prevent girls from getting caught in that? Mm -hmm. We talked about how that was kind of an awkward transition. So <laughs> I know I have an 11-year-old daughter, and so she thinks that I'm the most evil person in the world because she will never have a TikTok account or anything that, you know, vanishes and nobody ever sees Instagram's probably not in her future and so just be that person be that nosy in their business mom a student of mine recently their parents put out there that um, several people in her little group of friends had um, befriended this this another little boy on social media and mom caught on and so she investigated and like his next step was that one-on-one -on -one meeting with her, which would have been game over, but because mom did that. So protect your kids, be in their business. And then 
and I talk about like the vulnerability because the average age of entry, like so, I mean, not like a statistical average, just most women start at that middle school age. And just, we know that there are so many missing children and the child welfare system right now with our opiate epidemic is so overrun. And there's so many families that are like feeling maybe that tug to foster care or to, I mean, literally you could be saving that life. Um, Cause there's so many women that that was part of their story was um, going through child welfare um, because of their vulnerabilities that they've grown up in. So just caring, caring so much about this younger generation. Um, Mm -hmm. Red flags. So when somebody comes with, suddenly they have a lot of money and they didn't before. Maybe they have a separate cell phone that somebody's given to them. Um, oftentimes an older boyfriend has entered the picture and has offered them the world. Because a lot of times in the United States, that's what the story is. It's a Romeo pimp that offers them everything they ever dreamed of, they never had before. And then... Um, grooms them and starts to isolate them away from family and friends and then there's the flip and so then you would see the signs of abuse um, maybe drugs entered into the story and um, pulling away you would see maybe sometimes branding because pimps will write their names on a girl as a way to say you're mine you are my property um, Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of moms that'll call and they say, help me, but it's already gotten to the point where he's already taken her to New York or Miami. And at that point, there's not a lot that can be done. I know when I travel or, you know, if I'm even out to dinner, I'm watching the kitchen. And, um, and so anytime I see a younger girl around an older guy or she's looking for him to answer questions for her or, um, and I say him, there are female traffickers also. If there's somebody else that's in control of them and they can't speak for themselves, their eyes are down, those are all red flags to me. So then, in light of all of this, can you tell us just a few examples of kind of that spark of hope or um, moments when you've seen the love of God at work in the women here that you've worked with? Yeah. I'm going to share about Princess and I didn't last last time, but I just love this simple thing because you don't know who you're, like, who God's leading you to, or you don't know their story, and you hop out and you hand them that rose, and they instantly start to cry, and they were like, you have no idea how much I needed this right now, and it's it's mind-blowing. You just say, can I give you a hug, and they just, like, collapse into you, um, but then at the drop-in center, and we, it takes a lot of time and relationship building and trust building with these women um, because nobody's ever given without asking for something in return from them. So they're in that stage where they're like just deciding like, oh, maybe there is something more. Maybe maybe I'm not happy with my life the way it is. Maybe this isn't. And so we get to, like one girl had shared when we first started seeing her that she was like, all these people are overdosing around me all the time. She's like, why don't I get to overdose? And then we get to here and we, we have... The activities that we do are focused on like strength and identity and what real love looks like and we just get to like fill them with God's love and how much he cherishes them and pursues them and so she got to the point where she was like maybe God really does love me and we were like oh you have no idea and then and then to see them like get that strength and and get that vision for a future and one of the activities we do is a vision board and one of the like the first times we did that we were 
it's the same stuff that we have on our vision boards, right? A family, a vacation, a house, a car, um, maybe another country they'd like to visit. And you realize you're not so different from me. We just didn't have the same childhood. And so to have that, they catch that glimpse for a vision and they hear like, oh, God, like maybe if he loves me, he really does have a plan for me. And this doesn't have to be my end story. This is not my destiny. Maybe, maybe I could always be a vet. Maybe I could. And so they try. And if you know anything about opiates and addiction and detox, like it takes a lot of practice and relapse is part of recovery. And there's just so much trauma in their brains and all this, all this stuff. Um, so it takes a lot of effort for them to try. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out that time, they come back and it's just so much shame and guilt that they carry. And we just are arms wide open and we just love them. And then, and they're like, oh, they, they didn't leave. Like they're, they're still here. They, they still care for me. And so they, they get that courage to try it again and know that they have that support. And so to be able to see women that have gone through detox now or we've been able to connect them with a shelter and and it's not easy because these women are homeless and have don't don't usually have IDs and phone numbers and all these things so that safe house is such a critical part of the story to connect them to these programs but to hear them come back and say you saved my life and one said she I don't want just a drug rehab program I want Jesus because he is my only hope and it's just so beautiful after investing so much and in pouring into these women to see them come to this place. So what, what are your goals and visions for Out of Darkness as an organization? And how can we, as the people of Christ, be a part of that? Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, you know, we're on one side of Columbus right now and doing street outreach and a drop-in center there. But we also know that statistics say that street prostitution is down the list of where women are getting exploited in Columbus and Ohio in the United States. That there's online activity is the highest residential brothels. Like, who knew that was a thing in Columbus? So those are the places where they are, and we have yet to start a ministry to reach them. So expanding not only geographically, but in the number of ministries that we have. And we can only do that when the body of Christ engages, that they don't just be sad and talk about it at lunch, but when they are, when they allow God to break their hearts for what is breaking his and just saying, what do you want? Like, is it, is it financial backing because safe houses are six salaries and they're not cheap? So, um, is that where I can pour my assets into, or is it giving them my time, even if it's just a Friday night every couple of months to, to share a rose with a lady, or do I have clothes to donate, or um, you know, could I go to the safe house and do a craft with the women that are there? So there's so many ways, and there's an upcoming training in November to find out more about that. Thank you. Thank you. Can we give a round of applause and thank them for sharing? So, how do we respond? This is a big issue, right? It's a really big issue. And it seems so big that it seems like we can't do anything about it at times. But uh, I don't know if she mentioned it this time. She mentioned it first service. Columbus is not just, uh, Ohio is not just the fourth leading place for prostitutes or sex slavery in the world. It's, Columbus is the eighth most prominent city in this problem. Columbus, our Columbus, is the eighth leading 
city, in the nation, in this problem. I just want to remind us two centuries ago when slavery was rampant across the entire Western world, there were two men, John Newton, more famously known for writing Amazing Grace, a slave trader who Jesus got a hold of his heart and he started fighting slavery. And William Wilberforce, two men motivated by the mission of Jesus, changed the landscape of slavery across the entire Western world and much of the rest of the world in their lifetime and in the couple decades after their lives. If we will just do something, if we will respond somehow and do something, we can see that same kind of thing happen in our Columbus, in Ohio, and in our nation. I think the ways we can easily, most easily respond, we can pray. Pray about this regularly. Look for signs. Pray about how God wants you to be involved. Volunteer. You can give time. You can give money. We're going to have the End Poverty Plus event coming up. Out of Darkness is one of our featured benefactors of that event coming up. Uh, you know, you can even you can even give to it by by getting a volleyball team from your from your work to come sign up for the tournament and raise more money so that we can have more money to give to the the, the charities. You can we can continue to fight poverty because poverty is a, a big driver of this. So even just all of the organizations that we're supporting in this in this effort of end poverty are, are going to make a difference in this kind of thing in our own backyard and, and hopefully make it go away in our generation or quicker hopefully. Uh, so I want to I want to encourage you to consider if you have a heart for the international. Uh, IJM's a great organization. Give money to it. Give money to it. But we're a, we're a church that believes in relationship. We believe we make the most difference by building relationships. So I want to ask you to do the same preference towards Out of Darkness. They are local. We have the opportunity to build a relationship with their ministry. You have the opportunity to potentially volunteer and build relationships on the ground with them. Let's, let's put not just our money but our time and our effort where God can use us. I want to close service today uh, in a different way than we normally do, but I want to close the message portion differently. And normally I'll ask you to stand and, and, and we'll pray, but today I want you to turn to, uh, to some friends right next to you. I just want you to gather, and I want to give you just a, a minute or so for you to pray that God would work through us and destroy this evil in our day. Go ahead. Lord, you've already given us so much that we can use to liberate people that are enslaved, that have no hope. Lord, we give ourselves to you now and ask that you would do whatever you want through us, that you would lead each and every one of us to know our part in this, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our state, in our nation, in the world to bring your freedom, to set people free, that, Lord, because of our faith and because of your power working through us, that people who feel like they have absolutely no hope of ever having a good life can have the abundant life and the hope that you want them to have. Lord, would you allow us to take our place in this mission? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.